Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Boom Comic Source collaboration. We're here with your DC Spotlight for the week of November 7th, 2023. Apologize, it's coming out on the 7th, uh, late in the day, as opposed to the early in the morning or late in the day on the 6th. Uh, just I had some stuff I had to do yesterday. I couldn't record. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. So totally my fault. But it's, a, it's kind of a middling week. There's nine books. Nothing really jumped out at me. Nothing was really terrible. It was uh, it was just kind of okay, average week. Um, yeah. I think Rocky's going to be surprised when he hears what my book of the week was. But we'll <laughs> we'll get there. We'll 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 figure it out. Uh, but anyway, how do you feel about the week overall, Rock? I thought it was oh, uh, you know, I, I I thought it was okay. I was it was better than some weeks, uh, you know. And so there's, there's a couple of. Uh, I thought there was a couple of standouts. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm interested to, you know, now you piqued my curiosity about what your pick of the week's going to be, but uh, it'll be interesting. So, uh, yeah, let's get to it, my friend. Well, you know what? Usually you can figure out what it is because it's a book that I get really excited and talk a lot about. So <laughs> yeah. I think you're going to know before, you know, we get to the end, but uh, I still think you're going to be surprised. But anyway, we'll kick it off with Birds of Prey, written by Kelly Thompson, art is by Leonardo Romero. Colors by Jordi Belair, letters by Clayton Cowles. I'm going to start with the art. I've liked the Leonardo Romero art up to this point. It, it still is very good storytelling. Um, but one thing that I'll say, uh, in the setup issues, in the first two issues, because Kelly Thompson herself has described this really as, as sort of a heist story, right? Like, I'm not exactly sure why it's Black Canary. I mean, I know Black Canary considers Sin like an adoptive daughter. I, I never was really sure why that was the case. I mean... Sin is the daughter of Blockbuster in, in some way and had her soul sold to Neuron by Blockbuster and has been, you know, been through the ringer, as it were. Um, and she's gone to uh, Themyscira. The Amazons have agreed to look after her and train her and what have you. So, and last place we saw her is in the Titans. So it's still not clear to me why, uh, like where this prophecy comes from, why it's Black Canary, why isn't she involving the Titans, specifically Dick Grayson? Not exactly sure, but that's okay. I can set that aside, um, that this is sort of a heist thing uh, and Black Canary has to keep it secret, right? Like I need I need to buy into that notion for the story. I'm fine with that. So it, it is sort of this heist story and, and the treasure or the the, the thing that they're going to steal um, is Sin herself. And so the first two issues set up for that, uh, and it, really the first two issues are very strong on, on setup and on character interaction. That's what this book is focused on. The interaction between the characters, the dialogue has been funny. It's been interesting. It's been witty. It's been very sharp. Uh, I love the way Kelly Thompson uh, gives personality to Barda and I love her take on Harley Quinn. It's just really been a pleasure to, to kind of see that um, the personality and the characterization that Kelly Thompson has brought to these female characters. And, and when we were focused on that, when it was set up and when it was focused on uh, kind of the interaction between these characters. I think the Romero art was was fantastic. It was so good at uh, at conveying that um, that kind of dry wit that a lot of this dialogue has. But now that we're into the action part of it, I, the art is not as dynamic as I would like. Again, still very good storytelling and those moments and those beats and the funny lines, one-liners, what have you, uh, they still land very, very well. But, you know, I would be lying if I said that I didn't think that the action scenes weren't as dynamic as they might be with a different artist that had a, like a more dynamic style. And that's just not what 
where Romero's strong suit is. Again, nothing against the art per se, because it tells the story very well. It's very well paced. And I love, you know, the facial expressions and the body language and that sort of thing. But the action doesn't feel quite as over the top. I'm not feeling the impact of the action, especially when there's a scene where Zealot is fighting against a bunch of Amazons. Um, so again, I'm, I'm nitpicking. Uh, it's like, did I go out of the way to try to find something that wasn't great about this book? Maybe a little bit because overall it's, it's, it's really interesting. I don't have any complaints about the story and the pacing and it's just really, really enjoyable. Uh, but I couldn't help in those action scenes kind of wondering what it might look like if a different penciler was handling those action scenes, but I wouldn't have wanted a different penciler to handle the setup issues. So uh, once again, I'm being a hypocrite where I say I always want the same artist to do the whole book or to do the whole series. It's like, yeah, yeah uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe Romero, I mean, again, it's just not where the, the, the strength is in the art, but again, very strong book. Um, there's some foreshadowing now that Wonder Woman knows that uh, the Amazons are this. Uh, yeah, I guess the Amazon islands under attack, the mascara's under uh, attack that all these female uh, antagonists, protagonists, whatever you want to call them, are there, this crew that Black Canary put together. Um, it didn't seem like Green Arrow was much of a distraction for Wonder Woman, which is kind of what was expected, right? What we expect as readers, what Black Canary expected, what Green Arrow himself expected. So I was surprised he held out as long as, long as he did. But uh, <laughs> anyway, strong issue. Just that little nitpick for me. But uh, what, what are your thoughts on it, Rocky? Yeah, just uh, quickly add to some of your comments. Uh, I, I really like the portrayal of Zealot here. I like how Kelly Thompson's not afraid to play with and add her own mythology to uh, the, the mythology of Paradise Island and Themyscira. I like, I like how she has a Zealot sort of do a beach a beachfront ritual where she sort of uh, appears to put some sort of animal or worm inside of her and, and chants something and then it, 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 such that she cannot die or kill anyone, which is interesting, which allows, which, has, uh, which, which I think plays into some of the action scenes, which I, uh, I enjoyed. I, I quite enjoyed. I like the fact that, as Zealot says, it's amazing how, how it affects your fighting style when you know that you can't die and that you can't kill anyone. And so Zealot is actually, she can be as lethal as she wants because no matter how, no matter her, uh, she can stab as many people as she wants. They're not going to die because of this ritual she did on the beach. And I thought that was really cool. I, I now I, I'm totally curious. You know, what's the history of Zealot? How is how, how is Zealot's history related to Themyscira and the Amazons? That's interesting. It's we, we don't need to know the answer to that. But I like how Kelly Thompson is planting those seeds. I like this. I like the um, characterizations. I like how Map sort of jokes with Zealot, saying that she looks pretty good for being so old. We don't know exactly how old Zealot is. I'm still not entirely sure how much of uh, the the history of the Zealot, which we know back from the Wildcat days and the Image days, going through coming through to the New Fifty Two, is this new iteration of Zealot. What exactly is her history? I, I kind of look forward to Kelly Thompson's interpretation of that because I'm really enjoying this. I thought the characterizations were spot on. I love there's something about Leonardo Romero's art that it's really growing on me. I really enjoy it. It's sort of like a cross between. It, it almost looks like a. It reminds me a little bit of Darwin but with his own unique style and 
I I quite enjoy it, and the the coloring is muted. It's is, is muted, and uh, I know I'm not the only one. Uh, colors by Jordi Belair. This is an interesting choice by Jordi Belair. It is clearly it's very deliberate by Jordi Belair. She's usually more a little more vibrant on these colors here, but this is a very specific coloring choice. I'm I'm quite certain because this is there's a most of the people I've I've just anecdotally what I've what I've seen online. A lot of people are sort of commenting that they they're not a big fan of the coloring themselves, and I can kind of see that. I would like the colors to pop off the page because I know Jordi Belair can do that but clearly this is a choice that she has made uh, I, I've got mixed feelings about it but overall it still doesn't detract from my enjoyment of the story so yeah it's, I, I, overall this is pretty good and this is one of my candidates for pick of the week <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're right about the colors being sort of muted um, yeah it's not I don't want to say it's not clear why why you would make that choice but it it, it certainly is an interesting choice I, I don't know that I I don't know that I understand what, you know, that, that choice either. I, I think it does work in terms of if it is kind of sort of a personal interaction book, like I talked about the last two, two uh, issues being, as opposed to, uh, yeah, this one was just more action, but it felt like it was uh, missing a little something. So, uh, all right. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, next we have Blue Beetle number three. This is written by Josh Trujillo. Adriana Gutierrez is the artist. Will Quintana on colors. Lucas Catoni on letters. Um, it was fun to see, uh, Jaime back together with his ex-girlfriend, uh, not, not like together in relationship wise, but just to team up with Tracy 13, uh, once again, and he's asking for her help because it, it's becoming clear to him that this blood scarab, his powers may be magical based, uh, reminder of how powerful Tracy 13 is, <clears throat> even though she's a younger hero, probably needs to, um, get a little bit more of a spotlight cause she has a fun character. It's always cool to see Blue Devil as well, even if it was only for a moment as the surly bartender, uh, Dan Cassidy, the weirdness magnet. I still love that <laughs> series back in the day. Paris Cullen's art, just uh, gorgeous. Uh, I've been critical in the past of Adrian Gutierrez's uh, art, not not on the first uh, series. I thought the art in the first series was really great. But in the second series here, he's doing something that I, I'm not a big fan of. Uh, and I've criticized before, and he's doing like the ink splatter or what have you. Uh, we saw it a lot in the Batgirl series from Jorge Corona. For some reason, it's growing on me here. For some reason, it's working here. Maybe it's because when it does show up, it's it's on pages where there's like a lot of wreckage because of the fights with uh, Blood Scarab and, and the other uh, Scarab wielders in, in the book. Not really sure why it works for me in this book and it hasn't in others. Maybe – I think maybe also the colors, the colors here uh, from Adriana Lucas are, are kind of bright and vibrant. And so maybe it doesn't, the page doesn't feel as muddy. I'm not sure, but whatever reason, I really like it. Um, I, I'm enjoying, uh, like I said, the interaction between Jaime and Tracy when they find out, hey, this goes back to the earliest origins of Blue Beetle and Dan Garrett and the Blood Scarab. And the first time uh, Dan found Kaji Da, uh, there's history there. But it's clear also that the blood scarab is uh, is formidable. Maybe what is what I would consider like the first true um, like antithesis, a nemesis of of Jaime. You know, he's had other villains, uh, you know, that have showed up before in the past as as you know specifically blue beetle villains, as it were. But none that really kind of felt like they could rise to that level, like, a, you know, a Joker to a Batman or a Lex Luthor to a Superman. But the fact that Josh Trujillo is tying the Blood Scarab into kind of the earliest times, the earliest origins 
of Jaime, uh, that that really that works. That really works to make this um, this villain feel like he could be the the antithesis. He could really be the um, just the villain that that is kind of the opposite number, the, the distorted mirror image of of Jaime. So I'm I'm really enjoying that aspect of uh, the story as well. And then the other thing is is Jaime himself, right? Like as much as he uh, is a young hero, he's not as well known. I mean, Infinite Crisis was God, what fifteen years ago now? Like almost yeah. twenty. It's 20 been a while. Like, yeah, yeah, it's been a while. So. You know, this idea and, and jo- I've talked to Josh about this and he talked about it when he came on the show last, this idea of Jaime as this young, inexperienced hero. And that, that was sort of what he did in his first series, right? He, sh- he Jaime starts off and his parents send him away to live with his aunt. He's not going to go to college. Um, he, he seems like a young kid who's a little bit directionless. Even the Justice League, you know, they sideline him. Again, you're you're inexperienced. You don't know what you're doing, whatever. And, and by the end of that series, you say, no, that's not the case. Jaime... He knows what he's doing. He, he, you know, he deserves respect. He deserves to be treated uh, as an experienced hero and what have you. So we're seeing that play out, uh, that that kind of character growth and that evolution continue to play out to the point where Jaime is faced with something that you know a lot of heroes are faced with. Uh, you, you know that age old question: Why don't you choose the final solution, as it were? Right? Like he has a chance to. Perhaps, and we don't know if it would have worked or not. Blood Scarab is very powerful, as I said. But Jaime has a chance to blast him point blank, maybe you know, literally blow his head off, uh, and and chooses not to. He can't. He can't do it. There's that um, that whatever it is in him that says, you know, I don't want to kill, or do you want want to take the chance, the risk of killing somebody? And even Tracy Thirteen is like, what are you doing, man? Uh, <laughs> you got to take him out. Interesting that Tracy, you know, she's around the same age as Jaime. Maybe because it's magic uh, and, you know, there's a resurrection or whatever. She's not so worried about killing somebody. Jaime still is. I like that, right? It's got it's the humanity of Jaime um, that even though he wants to defeat this guy, he wants to protect the people that he and the, uh, a, I guess, aliens, the, the entities that he cares about. He wants to protect them from what Blood Scarab may do to them in the future. But when it comes to actually possibly killing him, he draws the line. Um, so I, I like that. That was interesting, especially as it's juxtaposed against Tracy 13 who say, no, you take him out, blow his head off, kill him. You know, you gotta, you gotta do what you gotta do as it were. So I, I, that was a powerful moment and we know there's going to be consequences, um, because, uh, Jamie didn't do it and, or Jaime didn't do it. And, uh, they, Tracy 13 and, and Jaime ended up having to, kind of run for their lives as it were because uh, the blood scare recovered. So mm-hmm. really action packed issue, great art, great colors are really enjoying the series. What'd you think? Uh, I loved it. I love the, I love the, the inclusion by Josh Torello uh, of the oblivion bar. That's awesome. You know, the last time we saw that, I think it was in justice league dark. Nice to see Madame Xanadu. Nice to see the oblivion bar again. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, I remember the last week, I think it was under Bennis's justice league that in the, in, in the basement of the justice league, they got a secret portal to the oblivion bar. I thought that was cool, but I, I like this. What, what a wonderful w- thing to incorporate, particularly it enhances the magical elements of the scarabs themselves. We got different, we got different, different color scarabs and what have you. I like the fact that it's, it's linked to ancient Egypt. Uh, a pharaoh, Kefri, was a corrupt pharaoh who maybe had access to the blood scarab and the Kafida scarab, uh, which is the blue beetle scarab, was maybe something that was used to incapacitate or to, to corrupt or, pardon me, to to uh, capture and to hold, uh, to keep uh, 
hidden away the the blood scarab from coming loose but it's clear that this ancient tomb the egyptian tomb is is used as the headquarters for blood scarab uh whether or not to use lethal force you've mentioned it uh, uh tracy 13 holding uh you know holding uh, jamie to account why didn't you use lethal force that struggle whether or not to to t- take that final step the final solution when you're battling a supervillain. uh all very well done. And I love, you know, look, uh, I think you're like me. I'm not intimately familiar with all the background of, of Blue Beetle. He's never been one of my favorite characters, but this is accessible. I get it. I can understand what's going on. I don't need to know all the details of Dan Garrett or the new 50 or all the different iterations of Blue Beetle. This is easy to understand. We're at issue three. I'm invested. I like where this, I, I seem to have an idea where this is going. I think these villains are compelling. I love the use of the Obliv- with the reference to the Oblivion Bar, Madame Mizanu, to all the characters. It all works well. And a shout out to the uh, the art by Adrian Gutierrez, I think works well. Will Quintana, uh, the colors just pop off the page. And I agree with you that the style with the, the blotchiness, it seems to suit the, suit the art. So overall, this was, I, I quite enjoyed this. And um, yeah, I, I, I quite enjoyed this. I had, a, I'm having a lot of fun with this. And because it's not a character that I normally find myself excited to read their adventures, the fact that I, I'm look, I look forward to this every issue. Uh, you know, this was, let's put a smile on my face reading this. I'm looking forward to where it goes. Yeah, again, I, Josh Trujillo, we, that's the other thing that I'll mention before we move on is we know, I know from speaking to him, from having him on the show, he loves Jaime Reyes as a character. He He's so invested in these characters and it really shows. You can tell he's having a blast. Um, so I want to Give credit to uh, and kudos to Josh. Fantastic job. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Superman 78, the Metal Curtain, uh, continuing kind of a sequel to the Superman 77 series that uh, Robert Venditti, the writer, did previously uh, with Brainiac. This time we're seeing uh, a whole new villain. Uh, this is written by Venditti, as I mentioned. Art is by Gavin uh, Goudry. Colors by Jordi Belair. Letters by Dave Lamphere of A Larger World. So uh, give us your thoughts on this one, Rocky. I, I, I thought it was I, I thought it was it was okay. It was okay. You know, um I, I note that the art I, I thought the art was 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 not bad, but I uh, I it was different than the first artist because on the first series of Superman 78, the artist was uh, Wilfredo Torres. And I thought, I think I prefer his art. It's a little bit cleaner and a little bit more fine. And it just seemed to be more, uh, just, uh, just a little bit better, but, but still Gavin Goodtree, the artist uh, for this series does, does a reasonably good job as well. And the story itself is, you know, again, uh, kudos to uh, writer Robert Venditti here. This, it's easy for me to imagine the, the, the 1970s special effects used for this type of story it just seems to capture the essence of the characters. Um, the, this, this is really a Metallo story. Uh, when Krypton exploded, not only did it bring uh, young Kal-El to Earth, but it brought some kryptonite that landed in Russia. And in a nutshell, the, the Russians utilized that and through their, their connections with the mysterious person who I assume is Lex Luthor, they attain a Metallo suit and they're going to, and they have one of their Russian soldiers assume that the mantle of Metallo and that's essentially the essence of the story itself. But, you know, just just the, the rapport and the dialogue between all the characters, as we recall them in the movies, Perry White, Lois Lane and Clark, uh, just the, the, the dialogue, how uh, it, it just it rings true. If you're a fan of the movies, again, this just is something to me. It's a, this is a this is a you know, it's a, it's a must read if you just want to harken back to the days of uh, the good old fashioned Christopher Reeve uh, Superman. Uh, this is this is probably. 
Uh, dare I say this is better than Superman 3 and 4. I will say that there's even a scene where Superman uh, repairs a, an oil tanker with his heat vision, which was, which was right out of a scene from Superman 3 where he did the very same thing. Uh, I was, I'm being a little bit critical here when I say this, but I wish Robert Venditti would have been a little bit more creative in some of the, some of the adventures of what he challenges Superman with in this issue. But I, I'm pretty sure the reason why he did that was to harken back to some of those Superman movies. And so probably he made the right decision. Uh, maybe I, I would maybe prefer just a little bit more originality in some of the, the, the action choreography, but that's a nitpick. This is a, this is an enjoyable comic. If you're into Christopher Reeve Superman, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. Uh, on all accounts. Uh, yeah, I, I think Gavin Goodry, his art style is a little more kind of like animation. It's almost as if take a Superman movie and any of them one through three i don't acknowledge that four exists but take any of the first three and and say okay a- animate this turn it into a cartoon and this is what it would look like whereas wilfredo's art was a little more kind of photorealistic photorealistic so it's just a preference of style i, I kind of prefer the the style that you know kind of reflects a little more live action um but again it's, it's a total nitpick um you're right in saying that this has the feel of those movies uh, and I love that we didn't go – it doesn't look like we're going to some sort of crazy supervillain with super um, superpowers like we did last time, right? Last time it was Brainiac, this alien, really esoteric ideas. We had the city, body, bottled city of Candor, all that kind of stuff, right? Like think about when this would come out you know, in 78 when the Cold War was still a thing. What's the villain going to be? It's going to be Metallo, uh, but not an American Metallo, a Russian Metallo. And they have kryptonite. Like there's all these – uh, there's all these like aspects to the story that feel very much like they're pulled right from 1978. Like they would work so, so well uh, if this had been, you know, um, Superman three or Superman four uh, on the big screen. Uh, I, I Superman one and two are, are, you know, inarguably the best, as you said, I don't like three is way better than four. Four is the bottom of the barrel for me. <laughs> three has its redeeming qualities. Yeah. Uh, you know, Richard Pryor's funny in it. That's right. Um, uh, what's his name? The, the guy that plays the nephew. Uh, trying to blank on his name. Uh, he played. He got a chance to return as playing Lex Luthor in the Supergirl TV. John uh, John Cryer. Uh, his oh. yeah. His portrayal as the nephew is kind of. Eh. But anyway, uh, I digress. Um, this I, I you know rather than that Superman three with Richard Pryor or whatever I would I rather have had this yes would I rather have had the Brainiac story yes one hundred percent so you know it's not a big surprise that that Superman the Christopher Reeve version of Superman is the Superman for Robert Venditti that that's who he pictures when he pictures a character Superman is his favorite character all that stuff comes through here um, and that being said as much as I love the ideas in here I love where this is going. The strength of the first series was in the emotion, the emotion that we got. Yes, Venditti nailed it in terms of the tone and the feel, making it feel like it was the Christopher Reeve version of Superman, making it feel like it was grounded in that uh, Superman movie universe. Um, this one, I don't know if it's because I already saw him you know, play that card, do that trick, and he did it very well, that it didn't land as much for me on this one. But it's the first issue, right? So we haven't really had a chance to really get to those emotional moments yet. So, uh, you know, nothing against uh, Venditti, nothing against Gavin Goodry. It's just th- this series hasn't come close yet to what they, uh, what Venditti and Wilfredo Torres accomplished in the, in the previous one. But again, it was those later issues when we saw um, 
the you know the bottle tinny of Candor and the Kryptonians that survived, and we saw you know the choices Superman made, and we had those emotional beats that that story like really landed. So first issue, willing to give it time. Uh, I because lo- I love a lot of these ideas. I love the idea of a Russian Metallo. I love the idea that. Yeah, uh, Lex Luthor might be so pissed off at Superman that in the late 70s, in the height of the Cold War, when Russia is the enemy, all caps, that Luthor would even go you know, to the other side, um, as it were, the other side of the Iron Curtain, uh, which, you know, that's a play on uh, the metal curtain of the, this uh, story, uh, the, the title of the story, subtitle, uh, is a play on the Iron Curtain. The fact that Luthor would go over to the other side, as it were. Um, it's not surprising. He really has no allegiances uh, except to himself. Um, but God, it really shows how despicable uh, a character he is. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> good stuff. Uh, all right, let's move on. Up next, we have Batman 139, Mind Bomb Part 1, written by Chip Zdarsky. Art is by Jorge Jimenez. Colors by Tameo More. Letters by Clayton Cowles. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Um there have been some times in the recent past where I've been a little critical of Jorge Jimenez's art. Uh, I loved his art back in the day on Superman doing those super sun stories uh, with Gleason and Tomasi. And then it felt like his art got a little looser inside, a little, a little more messy, a little more dynamic, uh, but not quite as clean. Didn't look quite as cinematic. This is a return to um, that style that I fell in love with in the beginning. Um, the opening scene, the setup, we're, we're getting, uh, you know, a crime scene on the streets of Gotham City. It's all this detail. You see the body. You see the, um, you know, purported victim uh, holding a cup of coffee, sitting on the edge of the, the ambulance. Little details like that, the steam rising off the coffee. It's just great. The color work by Tamea More as she's, re, you know, recalling what happened to the police officers, how everything is uh, sort of monochromatic colored red. Like all of it works artistically really, really well. And as far as the story, you know, it picks up right where we left off with the end of Gotham War, where we see Bruce saying, uh, yeah, so because of what you did, Dick, I'm no longer plugged in uh, to, to the, you know, Batman network or what have you. I'm going to take the chance to go out on my own. Um, stop putting you all in danger and, and sort of reset. Um, but how much of that is Bruce? How much of that is Zurin? It's really clear to me more, more so than ever that uh, after reading the story, how much Zadarsky has planned this all out. Like everything is all planned out. We're going back to, um, to characters and scenes and story points and plot points and what have you from his series, Batman, the night when we met a bunch of the people that trained him, uh, that story was way different than Rocky and I expected. It was much more personal. Uh, it wasn't this broad overview of, of seeing him travel around the world. We saw him meet Ghostmaker for the first time. We saw him meet all these other characters. Uh, we got to see Henri Ducard, who's uh, a very uh, integral part of, uh, of Bruce's training of becoming Batman. So really interesting to see Zdarsky set this up um, and go back and, and mine a lot of the things that he's doing. And interesting in a juxtaposition against who Bruce was at the beginning of Gotham or when he first woke up from that two week coma or however long it was eight week coma, two months. Um, and he seems sort of unhinged. He's coming across as very methodical and logical here. Like the Batman that we know, uh, the Batman that would not have um, done what he did to Jason Todd and what have you. But as it, as it goes along here and certainly at the end, when we see different versions of not Batman, but different versions of Zur and R, 
and uh, it becomes clear that the Joker, um, this version of the Joker, I guess, because that's another thing, uh, it becomes clear that the Joker knows who Bruce Wayne is, and he, because of that, he's in a way more formidable than ever. Um, he's kind of leveling up his game. He Does he truly want to destroy Batman? Does he truly want to destroy Bruce Wayne? Does he want to destroy one? Does he want to destroy both? Does he want to destroy any hope of Batman using the Bruce Wayne persona so he'll be Batman all the time so they can have even more fun playing their Batman Joker games? Not exactly sure what the Joker's end game is here. Um, but what's clear is, yeah, we're going to get a lot of Batman and a lot of Joker in terms of like fundamentally who are these characters and what is their interaction? <laughs> Anybody who's listened to this podcast for a long time knows that I'm jokered out at this point. I'm jokered out, but here we go again because it's another character or another writer on Batman who hasn't got a chance to tell, quote unquote, his Joker story. So now we're going to get Chip Zdarsky's Joker story. But damn if I'm not intrigued, you know, like he's pulling in from all this different stuff that hasn't worked or hasn't been explained, that's been left along the side, like three Jokers. The idea of three different Jokers, Jeff Johns, whatever, and we'll talk about the end of um, Matthew Rosenberg's Joker uh, maxi series here in a little bit. Um, but this was intriguing to me. This was intriguing to me. Um, you know, pulling in the idea of Zurinar from Grant Morrison. He's been playing with that. He's been playing with the trauma. Now he's playing with the Joker. Where this goes from here, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I kind of like the idea of stripping it away. We, now we know we're going to get plenty of the Bat Family. But I like this idea of simplifying. The title is Batman. The title's not Batman Family, right? Like I know in James Tynan's Detective, we got a lot of that. We, and it was Batwoman that was actually the main um, kind of the lead on the, in the, on the team. And, you know, Clayface and uh, Stephanie uh, Brown and, and Tim Drake and, and, and whoever. I think Cassandra Kane was there as well. And we didn't get, actually get much Batman. Um, but that, that was in Detective Comics. This is Batman. And, you know... I, I guess there's sort of an expectation because the uh, supporting cast has gotten so big that when you pick up a Batman book, you're going to get a lot of those other characters. But it, this title's Batman, and if it just focuses on Batman and we leave all the other stuff aside, I'm perfectly fine with that. And if we don't have Joker as the villain all the time, I'm even more fine with that. So this is intriguing. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty impressed. Uh, a lot to do with how... Zdarsky is, is pulling everything because it sort of felt like his run so far was kind of a runaway train where we're, we're going this direction and then we're done and now we're going to go over this direction and then we're done and now we're going this other direction and we're done. And it hasn't felt as a whole run to be cohesive previous. This issue feels like it pulls it all together. So yeah, I was, I was pretty impressed. And if you're watching us on YouTube, you can see behind me, um, it has one of the action figure, the McFarlane Toys action figure covers with Batman, uh, with Bane breaking Batman's bat. I had to. Oh, I had to order that. I ordered all the. <laughs> I ordered all the action figure covers, even for books that I don't typically buy the uh, physical copies. I just when I was doing my order, I typed in action figure cover, and I made sure yeah. to get them all because they're just bad. They're just awesome. They're just awesome. They're just bad. Yeah, it's it's cheaper than buying the action figures themselves. I know that. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, hundred <laughs> percent. When I do buy action figures, I do buy McFarlane stuff. Yeah, but that's yeah, right. I, it's mostly. It's not, and it's not that I can't necessarily afford it. It's that. I don't have room. I just don't have room. So yeah. I, very sparingly, I did buy the, uh, I don't know if I showed you, uh, Rocky. So give us your thoughts on uh, on this issue while I grabbed what I got at uh, San Diego Comic-Con this last year. I, I did buy a McFarlane action figure. 
Yeah, but give us your thoughts on this while I grab that. Yeah, I... I, I feel that Gotham, uh, Gotham War really derailed Zardaski's storyline. Uh, the the failsafe storyline was excellent because at the end of it, uh, Batman ends up in another universe. And by the time Batman gets back, what actually happens is that uh, uh, that resulted in in the the I think it was the the Red Hood or what, whatever the name of that villain was that he faced. Uh, in in the other universe that that Batman was on, that he was sent to from Failsafe, uh, it ended up that all the Jokers that were killed in all the universes came back to life, and also it was essentially hinted at that all the bat all the Zuranas throughout the the multiverse were also essentially brought back, and that's what's revealed here that all the ba- all the personalities, all the various Zuranas from all the Batmans and all the multiverse have essentially are now occupying Bruce Wayne's mind, Batman's mind. And the Joker somehow is aware of this, which is very interesting. So the Joker of Earth Designate Zero, our Joker, uh, wants to fight the real Batman and he's referring to Zur and all the Zurana iterations of of Zur from all the multiverse seem to be occupying Batman's head. And so that's what I find really fascinating. And, uh, you know, what's going to happen here? How is Bat? It's it's difficult enough for Batman to overcome the personality or the or the essence of just one Zurana Batman can hear yet. Now he's his mind is occupied with an entire multiverse of Zurana's that seem to be occupying his head. The Joker seems to be aware of it. We should also keep in mind that the reason why maybe all these Zurana Batmans from the multiverse might be occupying Batman's mind is maybe they want to kill off all the Jokers and all the different parts of the multiverse that were resurrected because of the the end of that failsafe storyline. So everything's connected here. One thing that was not necessary was Gotham War. If we'd have went straight from failsafe and then Batman gets back from the multiverse and went straight into this sort of storyline, mind bomb, it would have been so much better. Gotham War just, I think, completely derailed that momentum. But Good news is I'm back on board. I'm just going to forget Gotham War happened. And I'm, I'm really happy with this. I love the art. I love the concept here of the, of the multiversal iterations of Batman of Zorana occupying Bruce Wayne's mind. And perhaps we're going to see different iterations of the Joker here. Or at a minimum, there's even mention, like you said, of three Jokers. What exactly is going on here? I don't know. Uh, I'm a little bit worried. I don't. I've lost faith in Zardaski. I think he's. I think he squandered it with Gotham War. If that was actually a plan, because I, I thought Gotham War truly was a disaster, and I'm, I'm a little bit worried if he's going to be able to handle uh, really good concepts. Because Gotham War, in theory, if it had been done right was maybe not a bad concept. This is not a bad concept either, but man, I hope it's handled better than Gotham War. I'm choosing to have faith because I, I, I've, you know, but for the hiccup of Gotham War, I've always been a fan of Sardaski and I love his independent work and what have you. So I'm definitely on board here. And uh, yeah, so I, I like the main story. I like where it's headed. Mind Bomb has got my attention, my curiosity and my attention. And uh yeah, so I'm. I'm. Uh, do you want to? Do you want to give your thoughts about the backup with the Vandal Savage? Yeah, real quick before that, though, I, I I do wonder, right? Like, I'm not privy. I don't know. I could probably find out, but I, it was probably editorial going to to Zerdaski and saying, okay, we need. It's been a while since we had a bad event. We need to do a bad event. <laughs> and you know, he may have wanted to work with Tinny. Like again, it's purely speculation, or maybe editorial said, hey, we need bat a Batman and a Catwoman event. I don't, I don't know. And then they came up with the idea. Editorial is not going to be saying, okay, we need, we need a Gotham War. They're just probably saying Batman event. So 
it was up to Zardaski to come up with what, what the idea was along with Tinny Howard. So I, and I don't, I don't necessarily agree that it robbed him of its moment, robbed the story of its momentum. Cause I think Zardarsky was probably like, well, okay, what can we do with Gotham War? We can use it as a way to show the trauma that Bruce is under, you know, has undergone recently, which makes him susceptible to this, you know, Zurana takeover as it were. And I think in that way, Gotham War, uh, was successful. It wasn't successful in the unevenness of the story and how it feels like two disparate stories. The first half of the story completely abandoned um, to get to the second half of the story, which is Vandal Savage. So yeah, it wasn't successful at all. We definitely agree on, on that front, but I, I, I just, I don't want to, I, I, I'm not pointing fingers, but it probably was, there's probably blame to go around is what I'm saying, right? Like you can blame some of it on editorial. They're probably the ones that went, to Zardowski and said, hey, we need a bad event. He could have planned it better. It could have been executed better. I mean, who knows? Uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm speculating. But part of the reason I, I think that is because of the backup, right, which is also written by Zardowski. And it, clearly he's got story idea left because the backup stars Vandal Savage. He did survive what happened at the end of Gotham War with the meteor hitting and turning the elements underneath Gotham City into a Lazarus pit, basically. Um, Jorge Corona does the art. The ink splatters there. It's okay. It's not terrible. It's not as bad as it was in Batgirls. Um, but again, the, just the idea of this story and the fact that Vandal Savage is now tied to Gotham City because he tries to leave. And the further he gets away from Gotham City, he feels himself weakened, right? So the whole reason he was doing what he was doing in Gotham War and trying to have the meteor fragment hit was to get his powers back, get his immortality back, get his strength and everything else back. He's got it back. He feels more powerful than ever. But the further away he gets from Gotham City, the weaker he becomes. So he's got he's he's sort of trapped. He's tied to Gotham City now. So Zardowski clearly wants Vandal Savage there in Gotham City to tell more of Vandal Savage's story. So again, that that makes me believe that um, the pivot to you know in Gotham we're halfway through to Vandal Savage. That's got to be Zardowski's doing. I just find Vandal Savage to be kind of a mustache twirling villain. There's not really much complexity to him. I, I guess rightfully so. The guy's a caveman. You would think somebody who's lived for you know thousands and thousands of years would be more interesting, but he's not. He's really not. Nobody's ever done an interesting Vandal Savage story. I mean, again, I haven't read every single one of them, but anytime I read, it's just he's one of those guys. He wants power for power's sake, you know, not for any particular reason. He's not interesting, you know, the way like a Doctor Doom is or a Toyo Harada is. Um, so yeah, I've never really been that interested in him as a, as a character. So we'll see if Zareski can turn that around, but, uh, interesting to tie Vandal Savage so closely to Gotham city. Um, and yeah, especially because he owns Wayne Manor now. So eventually that's going to have to be rectified, um, yeah. as well. So we'll see how that plays out. What, what yeah. were your thoughts on the backup? Well, my thoughts on the backup were, I mean, it's fine. Vandal Savage is now restricted to Gotham city. That's cool. But, uh, again, you know, uh, uh, Vandal Savage has been portrayed as a, a has never been written particularly well, really by anybody. He's always like the, the troglodyte. He's always a moron. He's always defeated. He's never been particularly portrayed as all that uh, bright or intelligent. And, or, uh, and yet he has these long term plans that almost immediately fall apart upon, you know, one hero taking five minutes to reflect on the master plan that he has. It's kind of embarrassing. Uh, I'm going to give some criticism to Sardaski here. Uh I've got Zardask, Zardaski has 
already played his hand. He's played Vandal Savage as a moron, as an idiot. Vandal Savage not only is a moron and an idiot and is not very good at planning, but I mean, his 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 role in Gotham War, he was just a wild card that he was out to destroy, destroy Gotham and then leave and even kill his own daughter. And and so there, there's, there's, genu- there's nothing even redeemable. There's no part of Vandal Savage as a villain that, that, any, that, that has any kind of redeemable value that you can relate to either as, I mean, even, yeah, okay, I get, I get it, he's evil, but he doesn't, even, he doesn't even care about having any kind of legacy or offspring, and he doesn't even care about Scandal Savage, his daughter. He doesn't care about, and now, now, I mean, and then he was just going to leave Gotham. Why would you leave Gotham if you've got, if if you've acquired billions of dollars, you've acquired Wayne Manor. Why would you just up and leave? But now you got no problem staying. It just it just seems very haphazard and sort of thrown together. But again, I'm I'm being a little bit harsh on this because frankly, I like the idea of Vandal Savage staying put in Gotham. Maybe maybe try to work on your intelligence. Maybe work and plan something long term. I mean, try to try to pull up what the Penguin's doing over by Tom King there, where Penguin is at least maybe trying to start a start a new start. Start over again and put a little bit more intelligence and forethought into your your plan. So I, I hope that's what Zardaski does with Vandal Savage because so far Vandal Savage has, has come across as really exactly like you said, sort of like a mustache twirling, you know, villain that it's almost kind of embarrassing. He deserves better than this, and I hope Zardaski elevates him somewhat as a villain moving forward. Yeah, there's different ways it could go. We saw Azrael and and the old school um, Azbat's armor costume. Could we see? Uh, he again, he owns Wayne Manor. Could we see Vandal Savage decide he he's going to rule Gotham, Gotham Underworld, by becoming a version of Batman and take out all the other criminals because he wants to be the only criminal? Uh, or could it go the other way? Could he dive in completely villainous, try to take over Court of Owls? Like there's a lot of ways, a lot of ways it could go. But uh, anyway, real quick before we go to the next one, so here's my, that the latest McFarland action figure that I oh I nice got. Alan Scott. Uh, yeah, it's the it's the Dread Lantern from Oh Metal. Metal. Yeah, so that's nice. why he's got like the glowing eyes and what have you. So yeah, that was a San Diego Comic Con exclusive. Love Alan Scott. Had to grab that. So anyway, let's move on. Uh, we have Fire and Ice. Welcome to Smallville Part Three. Uh, Joanne Starr on script, Natasha Bustos on art, Tamara Bondalon on colors, Adriana uh, Ariana Mare on letters. Um, yeah, some great covers on this book. The hijinks ensues. Um, like we, we've got Jimmy Olsen, even turning into a, a giant turtle boy here. We've got ambush bug. We've got Maxi Zeus, and we have the hijinks of uh, of fire and ice, and <laughs> them try you know fire trying to do her own version of almost like celebrity rehab, but with supervillains working in this salon that they got that they bought in Smallville. So there's a lot of characters. It's a lot of um, kind of slapstick humor. Uh, so this issue wasn't as successful for me as the last one, which was my book of the week. It came out, it was so good. Uh, and partially because I, I, this one just feels like it doesn't flow quite as smoothly. Uh, and I think that's everything to do with the, a number of characters that are in the book. There's just, there's a lot of characters w- with all these different sort of Z-list supervillains that Joanne Starr has brought in. And it does make for uh, some humor, but it does also make for what feels at times like like slapdash, like we're going from one gag to the next. The story doesn't really have time to breathe. Um, but some interesting things happen. Uh, love love Jimmy Olsen here. Uh, love the burgeoning um, relationship that 
might be happening uh, with fire and uh, the bartender that, that owns the local tavern, um, Charlie. So we'll see how that all plays out. And uh, yeah, overall, really solid. The, the Bustos art and Tasha Bustos art perfectly suits the tone of the story that Joanna Starr is telling. Um, so it, that works as well. Jo- Joanne, I think I might have said Joanna. Joanne uh, is her name. So so yeah, this continues to be fun, uh, but it wasn't quite as strong for me as, as the previous issue. But uh, I think this is going to read really well when it all gets put together. Because just when you think it, it is only kind of a humor comic, something really dark happens at the end, um, which is hinted at um, by ice. She's like, yeah, there's this thing that happens in, in a Scandinavian countries sometimes where people get sort of possessed and then they get so hungry. They're willing to eat anything uh, because there are rumors that some of the, the herds, the cattle herds in, in, uh, in Smallville are, are literally like eating themselves. Like the, the cows are eating other cows. Uh, so yeah, it seems like, Something bad's going down, and if this zealous group of uh, villains that um, that fires put together, if they're the ones that have to solve this, oh man, we're in we're in big trouble. So uh, anyway, what do you think of this issue? Yeah, it was okay. I mean, yeah, the, this is in keeping with the mood and the tone of the story uh, series from the beginning. Um, I actually, I hope that uh, writer Joanne Star Star brings. Uh, I hope Livewire shows up. Because she's actually Jimmy Olsen's girlfriend now, yeah. right? According over no, that, not, not live, not live wire, not, silver not live banshee. Wire. Silver banshee. Thank you, thank you for the correction. Silver banshee. So, uh, and if I didn't know better, I'd think Ice has a little bit of a crush on Jimmy Olsen. So it would be nice, be nice to have uh, Silver Banshee show up and scream her uh, <laughs> uh, jealous uh, jealousy at uh, Ice just for a little bit of drama, because this is riddled with drama, and it is it, it's. The humor is there. My favorite character is still the bartender. The bartender seems to have a very good sense of humor because uh, one of the the ape character gives him a terrible haircut, but he's clearly there to simply hit on fire. And uh, he's uh, well. Again, that's 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 the funnest part. The rest, the, there are a lot of characters here. I guess one of the things I would I would note is uh, I wonder, and this is a mild criticism. Uh, is that what's the point of having this in Smallville if you're ha- basically having a whole slew of characters from all over the DC universe and it's really, is it really necessary? Why did this have to take place in Smallville? This could have been in any city uh, where a hero showed up and they could have opened up a salon anywhere other than the fact that it just justified the title. I, it, I don't think it was, you know, uh, where does the Smallville element uh, really come into play now? It seems less and less relevant as the story moves forward. Again, minor nitpick because that's really not the point. It's just, it's just a, it's a, it's a fun comic, and the humor is there. And so, you know, and I have to say, I am entertained, and I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not skim reading it. I'm enjoying it, be primarily off the strength of the second issue, and this one didn't, didn't disappoint either. So I am curious to see if there's going to be further surprises moving forward, and uh, hopefully Silver Banshee will show up. So, Yeah, it is interesting. You mentioned that, yeah, so it's in Smallville, but yeah, we've had, you know, Jimmy Olsen showed up. We've had Superman show up already, so like, <laughs> would this have been better suited um, to be in Metropolis? But, but again, Metropolis being more metropolitan, that's where the you know, word comes from, uh, it gets to tell a little bit more of a fish out of water story, I think, uh, placing it in Smallville. So, 
Uh, all right. Up next, we have Shazam, number five, written by Mark Wade, art by Dan Mora, who's also credited as a storyteller. Alejandro Sanchez on colors and Troy Petrie on letters. What do you think of this? Um, sorry, just let me get ahead here. Uh, well, um, this is uh, this picks up from the from the end of the last issue where where Queen Bee has incapacitated Billy Batson. He's sort of floating in space. Mary Marvel shows up. Mary Marvel shows up, and there's a couple of very interesting moments here. Mary Marvel shows up, and to revive Billy Batson, she uh, she does something very interesting. She she even though she gets her, uh, she wants to wake Billy up because he's floating in space. He's got to change back into Shazam or he's going to be killed and he's going to die in space because of the vacuum of space. And she, she calls upon the lightning of, of Shazam, but she can't call upon her Amazonian goddesses because she gets her, when she says Shazam, she's actually calling upon the Amazonian goddesses because of what recently happened to her at the end of trial of the Amazons. But she, she, she incredibly, she, she sort of calls out and asks the Amazon goddesses not to throw her lightning because when she says Shazam, she's really talking to Zeus and Zeus, Zeus hears Mary Marvel's call for Shazam and throws his lightning and she moves out of the way and the lightning hits Billy and changes him into Shazam. And so Mark Wade is playing Lucy Goosey with the, uh, with the Shazam, <laughs> with, 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 with the Shazam mythology, but goddamn if it doesn't work because it is kind of fun and uh, it ends. You know, it there's Billy Batson. He he doesn't he resents the fact that the that the gods of Shazam that that Zeus and uh, and that Mercury and all the and uh, uh, Achilles and Hercules that he doesn't like being used by them and that they're using they're they're exerting their personalities through. Shazam whenever Billy becomes Shazam and so he wants to give up the power of Shazam and and, and he's prepared to do that at the end but then his uh, of course Freddie Freeman pops in at the end and says screw you Billy if you don't want to assume the mantle of Shazam I will do so because we, we you know you know you, you shouldn't speak for all of us there's that sense there that at some point this this storyline at some point was maybe moving toward there's been some focus or hints about what about the rest of the Shazam family? What about the, the Marvel family itself? Is it just going to be Billy Batson and Mary Marvel yeah, as, as having the Shaz their, their own respective Shazam powers? What about, what about the rest of the, uh, the, the orphans that make up the, the family of Billy Batson? And uh, Freddie Freeman seems to be uh, taking it upon himself by saying, Hey man, uh, what about us? And uh, uh, so, I'm I'm curious as to where this is going. I uh, uh, Queen Bee. I, I like the Queen Bee. Seems to be taken off the uh, taken off the field. I I should say that uh, Shazam's powers here. Mark Reed really seems to. Uh, uh, he, he seems to be extremely powerful. Uh, Shazam. You really see how powerful Shazam is with his strengths. With his strength here, uh, I thought the art was fantastic. Dan, Dan Moore's art is just really. It's amazing. It really makes the story. These stories aren't complicated, um, but you really get a sense of the of the 
of like the character interaction, the, the the love and the friendship between Mary Marvel, Billy Batson, his family, and even how he feels, uh, he resents how he's being treated by by the by by his gods, by Zeus. And at some point, it's going to be interesting to see how the how Zeus and the other gods sort of reconcile how they've how they've treated Billy because they've really, Mark Wade's really portrayed them like a-holes here. Even Solomon, who maybe is the, is the God who has Solomon, the wisdom has a lot of wisdom, but Solomon, you think Solomon himself would have had more influence or tried to bestow some of his, have some influence uh, over the rest of the, of the gods that make up the Shazam power. But I, I thought it was very interesting what Mark Wade has done here. I think it, I think it's worked well and it poses a lot of questions, but I would have liked to see Mark Wade. I'd like to see him explore more of the if there was more ramifications from that the breakdown in the relationship between the gods and Billy Batson himself. But that might be forthcoming. We'll have to see, especially now that Freddie Freeman and maybe wants to uh, wants to uh, wants to come to the forefront and have those Shazam powers, and maybe they're going to compete for the powers themselves, or who knows what's going to happen. So I'm intrigued to see where this is going to go and how Wade's going to resolve this storyline. Yeah, I. This definitely has a timeless feel, right? Like you mentioned how powerful Wade uh, makes Billy, and it's very easy to understand. There's some humor here. Definitely all ages, continuity light. Um, But in that way, there's not a lot of sort of subplots or or complications to the story that are pulling me in, other than this idea of the gods being a-holes, as you put it, and this idea that Billy's you know, kind of standing up to them and then come to find out Freddy, who you can completely understand why Freddy would do this. And we get hints that Billy's going to be betrayed in the next issue. I think it even says like next issue betrayal or something like that. Um, Cause you know, Freddy, when he was sharing the power of Shazam, he didn't have to worry about his uh, physical limitations. He didn't have to worry about his disabilities. You know, he was for lack of a better word made whole um, when he had those abilities. And I, you know, I've, said before how much I loved what Jeff Johns did in creating the, the Shazam family and, and making it feel, um, giving it very much a family feel and, and the playing off the interactions between everybody, Darla and Pedro and Mary and Freddie and everybody, Eugene. Um, but at the same time, there's the other aspect of it that we've talked about before. We talked about it with Green Arrow. We talked about it with Flash. We talked about it with Batman. We talked about it with Superman. This idea that the, the core hero, the original, whoever it might be for those particular groups of heroes, becomes less special when you kind of dilute it down and give them all these different sidekicks, all these different the supers, as they're now being called, all the Green Arrow people. Um, so, it's, you know, same thing, right? If, if, the, every, if you have five different people that have the Shazam powers, it makes Billy himself, Captain Marvel or Shazam, less special. So I don't mind them kind of going back to basics, as it were. Um, but I say all this to say this. this is a very good book for younger readers because you don't need to know anything else that's going on in the DCU. You can pick it up. There's there's just enough subplot, just enough little sophistication hints and threads here that it can kind of set you up going forward to, uh, to read comics and understand kind of the soap opera serial feel of them. But if you just want to, you know, pick it up and read an issue or two, you can do that as well. And the subplots... Uh, and more complicated, more mature story uh, parts of the story don't really matter. So I really appreciate that from Wade, that he's making this feel timeless and uh, making it feel classic. And yeah, with Dan Moore's art, I mean, you definitely feel the power of Captain Marvel, the power of Shazam. 
um, you know, the moon is spinning and he's able to, to stop it. You know, that's just an, an awesome uh, visual and an awesome idea. So, um, but yeah, in terms of like the actual story, actual fight, tons of action, but not really a lot to it in terms of, hey, what does this mean? What is that? What's the deeper meaning of it? There, there is no deeper meaning, right? The apes wanted the, the warp drive. They tricked <laughs> Billy into going to the moon and fighting against Gargax. And that's what happened, right? There's not really any, you know, deeper meaning or, uh, you know, struggle to understand and, and, you know, mature adult themes or whatever. So again, that's why I think this is uh, fantastic for kids. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Icon versus Hardware number five. Honestly, I thought this series was over. Uh, so we have uh, issue five here. Almost feels a little bit like an epilogue. It's written by Reginald Hudlin, Leon Chills. We have pencils by Yasmin Flores Montanez and Dennis Cowan. Uh, inks by Montanez and John Stanisi. Colors by Christopher Sotomayor. Letters by Anvil Design. Interesting what it sets up going forward. We get the, the battle that picks up right where the last issue left off with Icon going back to her, uh, or Rocket rather, going back to her school, fighting against the quote unquote super Karens that uh, uh, <laughs> have ulterior motives, you know, very conservative, want to you know, boss everybody around. Um, but we could also say that the, the females that are there that have this kind of love superhero group, um, that they have their, their own motives as well, right? And they say, yeah, we can take, uh, you know, uh, Rocket, now that we defeated these super Karens, we can take over the school. Uh, we'll, we'll make it over. We'll make it our new headquarters for the Love Corps, and you know we'll teach young women to, to deserving young women, not these spoiled rich kids that have been here before, uh, how to be great leaders, uh, and, you know, female empowerment, and, and all that sort of stuff. And that that's all well and good, but uh, that bothers Icon, right? Because Icon feels like um, I don't want to say Rocket necessarily owes him, but but everything he's done recently is all because of Rocket, right? Like he was just hiding out in his mansion, content to just let time pass until, you know, hopefully uh, technology on Earth advanced to the point where he could build a ship to get back to his home planet. Um, but Rocket was the one that came and convinced him to, you know, become part of the world again and try to make a difference. And now she's going to turn around and kind of go with the love core. He feels a little bit abandoned, as it were. Uh, we also have uh, this fight between um, Hardware and Icon against Brainiac, um, which doesn't really – it's almost a three-way fight, right? Like Hardware and Icon are willing to take out Brainiac together, but then as soon as Brainiac is kind of off the playing field, Icon is of the uh, opinion that Hardware doesn't deserve the, the powers and abilities that he has because of the terrible choices he made, altering the timeline and all that. And hardware for his part's like, you don't know who I am. You know, I'm not give, giving up. You could take away everything I have. I would just rebuild it. So there's some animosity there as well, which uh, hints at um, possible future problems between the two of them. And then at the end, we've got uh, these groups that are members of the Shadow Cabinet, which was another uh, milestone title back in the day, that see all these threats going on. They see what's going on between Hardware and Icon. They see what's going on with the Love Corps and the Super Karens and what have you. Um, and they're, they're worried about what's to come. And so they say uh, it's time for the Shadow Cabinet to be reborn. So a lot of moving parts. Like I said, it definitely feels like an epilogue to the story that's been going on. Um, in these different comics and hardware and icon, we had some hints of the shadow cabinet here or there in some of the one shots or milestone uh, anthologies that have come out. So this definitely feels like set up for kind of the next 
portion, uh, maybe call it a milestone 2024. Um, so we'll see how that all plays out. Um, what I am kind of surprised, like back in the day, I, I enjoyed hardware. I mean, um, I think it's fair to say that Curtis Metcalf was sort of the uh, African-American version of Tony Stark. Um, here he's sort of dialed up to 11, if you will, in terms of like arrogance and almost to the point of um, not that he's villainous, but that he, he's blind to his own shortcomings and he comes across as kind of a dick, um, which, you know, Tony Stark can be portrayed that way uh, as well. Uh, but yeah, he's totally over the top, doesn't listen to reason. I mean, I don't blame Icon for going, you shouldn't have these powers and abilities and technology because look what you did with it. Like, and, and you and I talked about it when we were reviewing the first few issues, like, have you never studied time travel? Have you never seen a sci-fi movie? Like what part of going back and changing things yeah. did you think was a good idea? Like you're Curtis yeah. Metcalf, you're supposed to be a genius. And that's like one of the most idiotic and moronic things you can do. So yeah, again, I think it's, it's his ego that blinds him, right? Like he's like, he's one of those people, he doesn't stop to say, should I do this? Right? Like he, he's more, can I do this? Can I figure out a way? Can I figure out an invention? Can I figure out technology? can I figure out a way to do what I want without thinking, should I be making this decision? Should I be traveling back in time to try to change things? Well, the answer is no, dumbass. The answer is no. You'll only make things worse. We've seen it time and time again. So, um, and again, the art solid. It's very in keeping with the tone and the feel of the art that we've had for Milestone all along. I mean, Dennis Cowan, <laughs> you know, he did art for Milestone back in the day. He's part of the Milestone family. So it's no surprise uh, that when you've got his art on the book, that it feels very much like a milestone book. So yeah, not hundred percent sure how much it was necessary for what came before with the first four issues, but it definitely feels like it sets up milestone, the whole universe going forward. So we'll see how that all plays out next year. What'd you think? I, I thought that, uh, it's clear by the end of this what uh, writers Reginald Hudlin and Leon Chills were, were going for, but it, it has it's been a very choppy ride, uh, to be blunt. These five issues have been very choppy, very not particularly well paced, but yet it's very clear where they're trying to head here. And it's now revealed in this issue that really the whole point of this series was to show how the Milestone universe is really uh, it's broken up. It's they're, they're not particularly united. And Icon and Rocket, they're basically separated. Uh, Icon doesn't get along with hardware. Icon doesn't get along with Rocket. It's clear that the that the most intelligent, level-headed person in the room is Icon. He clearly is level-headed. He knows what he's doing. He can see straight. He's not crazy. Hardware is borderline is extremely narcissistic, can't see that he is, he's basically, he's a potential Kang the Conqueror. I mean, in fact, he basically became Kang the Conqueror in a sense, and then he decided to undo it when things went awry. At least he had the self-awareness to know to undo all the harm he did. Uh, meanwhile, there's other forces at play. The Shadow Cabinet's going to have to come rise to the occasion be, uh, in, in, in future storylines because of this breakup between Icon and Rocket and Icon and Hardware. I, I, find it, I find it interesting that the relationship between Icon and Rocket is so bad. Rocket is really showing her immaturity. She has some nonsensical notion that she wants Rocket to see her as an equal. I mean, uh, from I, and I don't know if this is me just making an observation about the characterization of Icon and Rocket, or maybe a criticism of of the of what Reginald, uh, what Hudlin and Chills have done with the characters. But 
I've always thought of Icon and Rocket as being sort of a father-daughter-like relationship. It's been more of a paternal relationship between Icon and Rocket. And then, but the, then to see that Rocket doesn't see doesn't see Icon as a father figure, uh, I thought was very surprising. She wants to be his equal. Like, give me a break, honey. I mean, with all due respect, you ain't never going to be his equal. Ain't nobody Icon's equal. And I, and the fact that she's even thinking along those lines, I find absolutely astonishing. And she wants to join the Love Corps and they defeat literally a bunch of Karens. I mean, there's... I have to say this, that there's a lot of cultural elements from our real world in this. I mean, even the fact that they fight a bunch of Karens, there, there's there's the more over-the-top, crazy uh, uh, cultural elements from our world are, 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 are used by Harlan and Chills and exaggerated here. And uh, and even even the way they dispense with Vandal Savage, what was the point of having Vandal Savage in this storyline? He's just, I mean, he just shows up out of nowhere, and then he's killed. He's killed immediately by by, by just sort of like he's dismissed. He's killed and he's done. What was the point of even having him in the storyline to begin with? Uh, it just it just seemed like a lot of this stuff was oh the, these characters were used but not really fully explored. And in any event. Uh, End of the day here, I understand where the storyline was going. I just wish more could have been done with these characters in an in, in, in an interesting way. But at the same time, I kind of like where these characters are at. But I, I would like to see more development in the tension and the drama between these, these characters. And I would like to see some consequence. I mean, one of the things that really disturbs me here is, what's the consequence to what Hardware did? He hasn't suffered a consequence. Where's the consequence? It's more like, and then this happens, and then this happens. Well, what's the consequence from what hardware did? He hasn't learned any lesson here. He, What happens, I mean, everything he did, he managed to undo. It just seems too conveniently wrapped up. There should have been some consequence, some price to pay, and there wasn't. And so I would have liked to see more than that, more consequence moving forward. It's only five issues. I realize there's only so much they can do, but I, I'm I'm being critical in this regard only because I lo- I, I've really enjoyed enjoyed these characters having not been really familiar with the characters in 96 moving forward and I think they've got more potential than what has been shown here and I say that with great respect to the writers because I am on board to see where these where this milestone universe goes into the future yeah it's a great point um Curtis Metcalf he hasn't caused a problem for himself that he hasn't been able to fix yet so yeah. why would he worry about the consequences if I do something wrong I can just fix it yeah, yeah. That, that would be what somebody the story somebody needs to tell you know he screws up and he can't fix it um and then maybe he'll learn some humility i don't know i guess we'll see uh okay moving on uh it's a series that we've struggled with it's finally coming to a close the joker the man who stopped laughing issue number 12 matthew rosenberg is the writer carmen a dijon domenico is the artist ramulo fajardo jr on colors tom napolitano on letters we found out last issue that the one of the Jokers that we thought was the Joker, that he himself thought was the Joker, was actually just a Joker henchman, that the Joker himself turned into a Joker to cause more chaos uh, and forgot that he did it. So it was very anticlimactic in that way to find out that, yeah, it wasn't some big conspiracy or whatever. It was just something that the Joker did, and the Joker's so insane that he forgot he did it. Um, and so, the, if anything, this fake Joker is even more nihilistic because he knows he's not really the Joker. What's the point? So he comes up with this plan to load a train full of uh, Joker gas and he's going to, you know, 
turn the train speed all, you know, all the way up and he's just going to crash it right into the central train station in Gotham and it's going to blow up and the gas is going to go everywhere and everybody in Gotham is going to be turned into a Joker. Um, the real Joker want, you know, wants that Joker dead, even though he's been reminded that, hey, you did this, I don't care, there can only be one of me, what have you. Um, and so he's trying to, to stop him. Uh, and then we see Jason Todd, who, uh, you know, kudos to um, to Matthew Rosenberg. It, it probably threw him for a loop that in the middle of him telling the story over in Gotham War, we have Jason Todd uh, becoming a scaredy cat. And so he's like, well, how am I going to how am I going to reconcile that? He's, you know, an important part of my story. He can't be running around after jokers if he's a scaredy cat. So he comes up with this idea that the Joker himself wants to be sure that Red Hood can be there at the end. Uh, or the, the fake Joker, the Red Hood can be there at the end to try to take out the actual Joker. So he exposes him to just a tiny little bit of fear gas, uh, which wakes up the psychotic side of him is the way it's explained. So kudos to Matthew Rosenberg for finding a, you know, kind of an incontinuity way of, of solving that, even if you can't think about it too much, because it doesn't really make sense. I mean, it's all comics. How much sense does it make that you can give somebody something that makes them scared every time their adrenaline's released? That doesn't make any sense either. Um, but yeah, interesting dynamic between fake Joker, real Joker. Everybody's playing everybody against each other, and, and you know, they're all trying to play all sides. In the end, um, Jason Todd is able to save the day. He's able to, to crash the... Uh, blimp, the dirigible that the real Joker had used to track down the fake Joker on the train. Jason Todd takes over the blimp. He crashes it into the train. So it explodes, but goes into the water. So the gas doesn't escape uh, as the bridge is, uh, or as the train is going over a bridge over water. Uh, and both Jokers jump off while they're in the water. One Joker cuts the other Joker's head off. And the Joker that emerges, all his hair is burned off from the fire. And his clothes are all burned off as well. Because while they're fighting, you can tell which is the real Joker and which is the fake Joker. Fake Joker's wearing like a purple long sleeve shirt with green overalls. And the regular Joker's wearing like his classic purple suit. But they fall in the water. One Joker cuts the other Joker's head, to, head off. He emerges. Uh, his hair is burned off. He has no clothes. And one of his henchmen says, well, what happened to the other Joker? He pulls his head up out of the water. Oh, he's right here. I'm the real Joker. But we don't actually know that. We don't actually know if this is the real Joker, if it's the fake fake Joker, is it the original, is it not? Guess what? It doesn't fucking matter. And th that is the whole point, right? I don't think it took this convoluted story, 12 issues with art that at times was chaotic. It didn't take this much to get there. I get it. You put the name Joker on a book and it sells. So, you know, DC wants to sell comic books, what they're in the business of. But this could have been three or four issues to get to the same point. And again, it goes back to what's going on with three jokers, what we saw um, in the three joker series from Jeff Johns and Jason Fabok, whether you want to think of that as incontinuity or not with what Batman found out from the Mobius chair, there are three jokers there are multiple jokers. You know, they, these two jokers on the, on the train talk about, yeah, it's going to crash the train to Gotham city, create, create a bunch of jokers. Even when they decide to jump from the train, right before they decide, they say, Hey, here's the deal. We'll, we'll leave, we'll get out of this, we'll escape, and we'll each go our separate ways, agree never to see each other, but it'll be great that each of us will know there's another Joker out there causing chaos. So again, it's just reiterating this idea that it, the Joker isn't any one person. It isn't any one you know, 
linked to any one man. Instead, it's this idea of, of chaos and being an agent of chaos or whatever. I don't know if that makes the Joker a more interesting character, a less interesting character. In a way, goes back to what I was just saying before about this idea of diluting down an idea because it's not special anymore. I mean, I was initially intrigued about the idea of three Jokers, but it's in that moment when Batman's on the Moby string goes, what, there's three Jokers? But even, you know, after taking three seconds to think about it, no, I'm not in for three Jokers. One Joker's too many for me because it gets overused. Now you got three Jokers. He's going to be in every book every month. He's going to turn into Amanda Waller at this point. Uh, so I'm not in for the idea of three Jokers. I'm not in for the idea of it's not just one specific guy. In a way, isn't that depressing to think anybody, anybody could become a Joker? Anybody could be exposed to a little bit of Joker toxin or, yeah. you know, Joker toxin mixed mix with fear gas and will become, you know, psychotic and nihilistic. Like, what a depressing idea about who we are as as humans, right? So I guess I get the point of it. Like I said, it does the Joker is more of an idea than an actual person, and we don't even know if this was the real Joker or the fake Joker or whatever, all we know is it doesn't matter. Um, and I guess that was the point of the story. So in that way, it, like if that was the goal, that's what you're going for. Hey, mission accomplished. I don't particularly like that where we got to. Uh, and I don't think it needed to take as long to get there, but I get it. You've got the idea across, but yeah, I, w I won't miss reading this series on a, on a monthly basis. I'll say that. So yeah. uh, what were your thoughts, Rocky? Uh, my thoughts are, I, I thought Matthew Rosenberg should have made no attempt whatsoever to make this part of mainstream continuity because it shouldn't be, and it ought not to be, and it's unnecessary. Uh, it, straight up this, I thought this was sort of black label and sort of out of continuity anyway. Uh, why would you want to fit this in? What purpose does it serve? Narratively is completely unnecessary. We, we've already got three jokers. We got, uh, and, and I, I just, I just think this is one. This is really, really. Uh, well, okay. We, we, uh, you and I both criticize this. This has been the pacing has been wonky. It's been all over the place. You have an easier time distinguishing between the fake Joker and the real Joker. I sort of give up, gave up. I because I stopped caring, and it, it really doesn't matter because at the end, I mean, all this to get to the end. When the whole point of the ending is that it doesn't matter, so we don't know if the joke, if the the fake Joker or the real Joker survives, so it doesn't even matter anyway. Well, then what was the point of the twelve issues? And, and I guess that I, I I get that maybe that was the point, and maybe anybody can be the Joker, but anybody can't be the Joker. I mean, let's be blunt. Yeah, how do you create a Joker? Well, just shoot somebody in the head. I mean, that that's I mean, this this thing just really, I this just loses any. What was the point of this? And um, I don't want this to tie into anything else. I don't want this to be referenced. This this can't even, well, this is not going to be an evergreen. This is, I've already forgotten about this. I just want to move on. Uh, Matthew Rosenberg, when given 12 issues, then tends to de tends to write a six-issue story and decompress the hell out of it to the point where it loses its uh, its moments, it loses its gravitas. And that is, this is clearly an example of that. And it's unfortunate. And uh, I, I also, I'm not a huge fan of the art here, to be honest. I, I, my inability to 
adequately distinguish between the jokers and keep track of the narratives moving forward. Admittedly, I think it would it'll hopefully read better as a trade, but then you and I even commented on, in earlier issues, maybe it won't read better as a trade. Maybe it'll actually be worse. When and let's not forget the backups. The backup it's the backups themselves were wonky to begin with and uh not entirely i mean the biggest controversy was the a pregnant joker giving birth to some at one point uh the francavilla backups i I love francavilla as an artist but a lot of this was you know what was what was the story being serviced and what was the point here other than just being zany because it's a joker story so this was this, this whole thing was was one big question mark and for me uh, just a huge disappointment and uh yeah it this isn't my cup of tea and i i can't recommend anyone get this either as a trade or as a, as an individual issue straight up I, I i just can't because i don't i find it deeply unsatisfying to me but uh you know we'll leave it at that it's not my pick yeah. of the week i'll tell you that much yeah, I mean, we're right. We're we're definitely we're on the same page with this. Like, why did it? If this was a point, it doesn't matter. Joker can be anyone. It didn't. It should not have taken this long to get there. Yeah. And and why? You know, why do it? So much back and forth for the first eight, nine, ten, eleven issues. Who, which one's a real Joker? Which one's a real Joker? Oh my god! Oh my god! How did this happen? How are there two Jokers? <laughs> and then we found found out last issue. Oh, he just shot shot one of his henchmen, exposed him to Joker talks, and now he's a Joker. Wait, what? What? <laughs> and all the back and forth. Like, which one's a real Joker? Like. And then, it, and then, you know, bad enough, it just turns out it's a henchman. Like, how anticlimactic is that? And then this one to end going, but it doesn't matter. Anybody can be the Joker. Like, yeah. why the fuck did I read this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, just, yeah. 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 Definitely not my pick of the week either. I know I'm not, I'm not, I'm not spoiling anything by saying that. <laughs> so, and don't get me wrong. I love Matthew Rosenberg. You know, if, if this was his goal and he wanted to stretch it out and, you know, it, I will say it does say a lot about chaos and human nature and what have you. If you want to look at look at it from that perspective, I don't because I'm sick of the Joker. <laughs> but you know, if you wanted to you know read this thing and break it down from a psychological standpoint, there's a lot there. There's a lot of meat on that bone. I just don't care. I'm sick of the Joker at this point. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Last book we're going to talk about in detail: Poison Ivy, number sixteen. Written by G. Willow Wilson, Marcio Takara is the artist, colors by Arif Prianto, letters by Hassan Atzman Elhau. I don't actually have a lot to say about this. Um, Poison Ivy's in this uh, very little, actually. It has more to do with her. She's been having dreams. She's thinking back on uh, when she had the Lamia spores and she was out sort of traveling the country. People that she infected, you know, she found out last issue or maybe it was the issue before that there, um, that those Lamia sports were still out there in the wild because she had infected people and they were mutating. Uh, and so now that there are strains of the Lamia spores that are, um, you know, outside of her body that she can't control the way she can sort of keep the ones inside her in check and sort of control them, uh, certainly has been able to keep them from killing her. Um, but the fact that it's been out there and it's mutated, uh, and it's causing problems. And so, it focuses on one particular guy that she infected. He's mutated. The spores take him over um, and he wanders off into the woods and looks like he infects some other people and they're all headed to Gotham City and I'm assuming are, are going to be confronting Poison Ivy at some point. Um, so a bit of a setup issue. Uh, she realizes that she should have seen this coming, uh, but she didn't. And now she's going to 
face some, you know, speaking of facing consequences, uh, she's going to be facing some consequences of the poor decision she was making early on um, in the series when she thought the Lamiaspores were going to kill her. And, you know, she, you know, in, in her defense, she didn't think she was going to be around. So why would she really have cared what was going to happen in the world after she was gone? Um, but I, the, my favorite part <laughs> is the little blurb for next issue. Uh, again, speaking about consequences, it says next muck around, find out. And we all know, uh, if you just change one letter, yeah. uh, it sounds a, a lot like another saying that, uh, <laughs> is out there on the internet, uh, a, a lot of times these days, uh, definitely, uh, looking to reap what you sow or having some karmic justice, uh, coming forward. So, uh, yeah, definitely set up issue, the Marcia Takara art, very strong as it has been throughout the series. His art is not the cleanest and it's not a style I, t- I typically really enjoy, but it lends something to the organic feel uh, of the book, which it, the book is Poison Ivy. You want it to feel organic as much as it's set in Gotham City currently. Um, so we're not getting a, necessarily a lot of scenes out in the forest or whatever, uh, what have you. Typically, um, the style of art that Takara brings helps to kind of break that up. Uh, although we do get a few scenes in the forest here, because like I said, this guy that's infected and has basically been taken over by the spores. I mean, I kind of took it as he like died and he's just like the embodiment of the spores. The spores kind of resurrect him um, and are fully in control. There's nothing left of who he was as a person. Yeah, almost um, like the wa- a walking pharaonic dead or something like that. Yeah, almost yeah like- exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll see. Uh, Poison Ivy mucked around and now she's going to find out. Yeah, I, I, I really like what uh, Jay Willow Wilson has done here, how she's sort of like she's taken the plot element from her from the very first issue. The idea that initially Poison Ivy wanted to wipe out the world uh, as a, some sort of twisted gift to Harley, you know, and uh, and ultimately it was discovered over the last 16 issues uh, that uh, that that these Lamia spores uh, that that she had that that she, that had infected her and that. Poison Ivy sort of created with her body chemistry. They kind of mutated and they, they weren't so much a bioweapon, but they were biosurveillance that Jason Woodrow, the Floronic, Floronic man, wanted to use. But she defeated Jason Woodrow. And she thought that basically, she thought that the Lamia spores had basically like, like a, a virus eventually dissipated and weren't much of a threat. But what has happened, and as the story describes, is that through the various interactions that that poison ivy has had over the last uh, 16 issues the these this these lamia spores have mutated into something far more deadly and have sort of changed the people that have been exposed to the lamia spores into these sort of like they're able to communicate to poison ivy through the micellial network uh and poison ivy has been able to hold off her own contamination her own infection because she has obviously she's got powers but even her powers at some point may not be enough to protect her from becoming these sort of like undead floronic plant-like creatures that are wandering walking around like zombies and so this is very much um a disease of poison ivy's literal own making, and uh, you know, and you you mentioned it that the tease of the, of the title of the next issue, muck around. Well, in you know, muck around, replace the M with an F. 
That's exactly what Poison Ivy's been doing a lot in this series is effing around. You know, she's had, you know, she's been having her fun with Harley and and uh, and Janet from HR. And they've been having a lot of fun and been fairly irresponsible, quite frankly, and not paying much attention to the Lamia spores. And there's consequences here. And that's very important. It's not just, and this happened and that happened and that. Finally, there's a consequence here. And will, po- will Poison Ivy be able to address it? And what's going to be the price that that Ivy pays or Harley or someone else? Um, I personally wouldn't lose sleep if if Janet from HR dies, (laughs) but that's just me. Uh, But I I like that. I I like that there's consequences to all these things that have happened over the previous 16 issues. And I'm curious as to see where what Jay Willow Wilson has in mind to resolve this uh, rather large storyline that's taken that's been developing since this series began. Yeah, I mean, this wasn't originally supposed to be an ongoing. So, yeah, kudos to her for bringing it back around to, uh, like you said, the earliest ideas of the story. So, anyway, that does it for the individual books that are on sale this week. There are some collections. Let me pull it up. We've got uh, Superman Volume 1, Supercore. So, that collects the first issue of the Joshua Williamson Superman book, um, Superman title that's coming out currently. We've got Catwoman Volume 3, Duchess of Gotham. Trade paperback that collects uh, 51 through 56 of the Tinney Howard run. And we've got uh, Absolute Batman, The Court of Owls hardcover, which collects a bunch of the Scott Snyder uh, and James Tynan stuff. Uh, basically, Batman 1 through 11, uh, which is mostly Snyder, but there are some backups by, uh, by James Tynan. Uh, we've also have a new edition of DC, The New Frontier, Deluxe Edition hardcover from Darwin Cook. That is a seminal read. If you've never read it, treat yourself. Absolute evergreen title gets to the heart of who the DC characters are. Whenever you ask, if anybody ever asked Jimmy Palmiotti, hey, because he's had such success doing things like Marvel Knights and, and you know knows everybody and just a fantastic creator, fantastic person. Hey, if you were editor at DC, what would you? What would be your first thing that you would do? And he always says, I would have every creative team, every creator that works for DC or is working on any DC book, read Darwin Cook, The New Frontier, because that captures DC 100%. So that that's obviously high praise. Uh, we also have Sandman Universe Dead Boy Detectives trade paperback, which collects the Porn Sack Pichichote series. Uh, static Up All Night graphic novel, which is in the uh, DC YA line from uh, Lamar Giles. Uh, we have Batman Reptilian trade paperback, which is the uh, Garth Innes uh, Liam Sharp drawn um, Black Label Batman book, which was really, really great. Batman's a complete dick in that. It's so fun. Uh, Superman Unchained, Scott Snyder, Jim Lee art. <laughs> Jim Lee not at his best. You can tell Jim's super busy and rushing the art at, at some points. But still, it's Jim Lee art, Scott Snyder writing Superman. Uh, one of my favorite Superman, um, not really a villain, uh, but Wraith, one of my favorite Superman adjacent characters of all time, who's never been seen uh, before or since. Uh, I love him. Love his visual as well. Um, yeah, it would be fantastic. Like if I ever got Jim Lee to do a commission for me, it would be it would be Wraith from Superman Unchained. So highly recommend that. Also, Commandi, The Last Boy on Earth by Jack Kirby has its second volume, uh, which collects a bunch of the issues from the series, issues 21 through 40 specifically. Uh, and then we also have Wonder Woman, The Golden Age Omnibus, volume five hardcover, which collects... Um, Wonder Woman's issues 35 through 47 uh, and Sensation Comics 90 through 104 from the Golden Age. So tons of covers uh, or tons of collections this week, rather, uh, if that's your thing. So 
Moment of Truth, Rocky. Uh, book of the week. What are you giving your nod to? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, my, my pick of the week is Birds of Prey. Uh, nothing. Uh, yeah, I just I, what Kelly Thompson has done here. I'm I'm impressed. I've you know I'm I'm glad I'm glad that she left Marvel to come over to DC. I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I'm I, it's actually I, I wish I, I I want DC to give her more work. Uh, three issues in, I'm enjoying it. it. It's a lot of fun. She seems to capture the voice of the characters. She's thinking outside the box a little bit. I enjoy her dialogue. She understands the characters. There's humor. There's fun. There's it's action packed. And three issues in, and it's a high recommend for me. What about yourself? Yeah, despite the fact that Joker is in it, my book of the week is Batman 139. More Joker than you can shake a stick at. Uh, but I just I love how Zdarsky's pulling everything from his entire run, even th- that Batman um, the Night series that we talked about and covered last. I think it was last year or earlier this year. Um, he may, may have started toward the end of last year, but yeah, he's even pulling in stuff from there. Yes, it's the Joker. Yes, the Joker's messing around, knows Bruce Wayne's identity. But even so, just pulling all this stuff in and making it fun and maybe maybe at the other end of this, it does serve as somewhat of a reset for Batman and gets him back to his uh, his roots. It's so tough, right? Like you've, DC, you've created all these characters. Um, they're in all these other media James Gunn is, you know, getting ready to sort of launch a new DC cinematic universe. So you don't want to really put any characters, you know, in mothballs where they can't be found. But at the same time, what would it be like to just turn back the clock, right? Like think about back when Frank Miller did uh, Batman Year One. There was no Robin. There was no Batgirl. There was no Tim Drake Robin and, you know, spoiler and signal and, you know, it was just Batman, and it worked, and it sold um, really, really well. Uh, they would never go back now. It's, it's it's a different time. It's a different age. Um, but man, it would be it would be nice to have things a little, little streamlined. But anyway, I digress. Uh, I'm curious to see where this all goes. So I'm giving Batman uh, my book of the week. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Appreciate you joining us as always. Again, apologies. It came out one day late. Totally my fault. Uh, if you're listening to the audio only, be sure you head over to the YouTube channel and subscribe. Rocky's channel is comic space boom exclamation point. You can see our previous videos. You can see Rocky's other content there and what have you. Uh, if you are checking us out on YouTube, we appreciate it. Be sure you leave some uh, likes and we love to get discussions going in the comments. So uh, you can uh, definitely take part in that, but also be sure you head over to the comic source and subscribe on whatever platform you listen to your podcast on. Just do a search for the comic source. You'll find us. There's thousands of episodes uh, to go back through, listen to interviews, convention coverage, reviews, uh, and all of that. So we appreciate the support as always, and we will talk to you next time. Catch you later. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Please tell your friends about us. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whatever platform you use. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also, be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. 
The Comic Source is a member of the LRM Podcast Network, so when you visit the site, be sure to check out some of our other podcasts like Los Fanboys, our official movie and TV podcast hosted by Joseph Jammer Medina, Netflix and Chill, hosted by Nick and Carrie, covering a wide variety of film and television topics with Game of Thrones and Star Wars as particular favorites, and finally, Mike and Mark's Marvelous Adventures, as these two former athletes share their love of sports and geek culture by chatting about anything and everything sports and geek related. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.